speak the charm of make charm of make charm There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will rule the world. This is the Arnamancy Podcast. Exploring esotericism, tarot, magic, and the occult. I am Reverend Eric. Welcome back, Arnim Answers. This is Eric Arneson, and this is a solo show about the Hypnorotomachia polyphili. Um, but before we get into that, let's take care of a little bit of housekeeping. First, uh, the Arnimancy store is now online, and you can find it on the website. Uh, on that store, you can find um, digital downloads, such as my classes on sigils and planetary magic. You can sign up for uh, the next uh, Planetary Magic class, which should be happening live any day now, depending on when this episode comes out. And you can get the book that I'm in. So go check that out on the website. Um, Also, if you want to support the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash arnamancy. And uh, there are support plans there for as little as $1 a month. Uh, Supporters get free Uh, access to various things such as classes um, but they also get early access to episodes and blog posts and stuff like that and sometimes some things that I write just for my Patreon supporters so go check that out Uh, next if you uh, enjoy this podcast please tell one friend about it find your weirdest friend tell them that they should come and check this podcast out Uh, I'm not going to ask you to write a review I'm just going to ask you to tell a friend to look this up Phoebus was emerging from the ocean waves at the hour when Leucothea's brow grows bright. The whirling wheels slung beneath his chariot were still out of sight as he appeared dutifully with his flying horses, first Pyrrhois, then Eus, to tint his daughter's pale quadriga with scarlet roses and to speed after it without delay. His curling hair was already sending its rays scintillating over the restless blue waves. As he arrived at this point, hornless Cynthia was sitting opposite, urging on the steeds of her vehicle, which was drawn by a white and a dark mule. She reached the far horizon, separating the hemispheres, and gave way, fleeing from the first star that heralds the day. Thus opens the Hypnorotomachia Polyphili, the most beautiful book to come out of Venice. This episode is going to be looking at the history of the Hypnorotomachia polyphili, uh, what it is, some of its contents, what it's about, and then also some of the later influences it had. Um, the reason I'm doing this is because I'm going to be interviewing um, some, at least one person about some of the more intricate bits of the Hypnorotomachia, and I thought it would be a good idea to give everybody sort of a little bit of a background, since it's such an obscure work. I want you guys to know what we're talking about before we get into stuff. So, let's start talking. Um, throughout this episode, I'm mostly going to be rep- uh, referencing uh, the scholarship of Jocelyn Godwin, who's a famous musicologist, author, historian, and translator, and also... Ephthemia Preki, who has a PhD in Byzantine studies from the University of Cyprus. Um, I'm sorry, Cyprus. Those are the two main uh, uh, scholars that I'm going to be referencing. I 
might have some other stuff in here. I've, I've been working with the uh, with the Hypnorotomach. I'm going to call it the HP. I've been working with the HP uh, for like 14 or 15 years, and there's probably stuff that I've read that I've soaked up and totally forgotten references to. And there's also some stuff in here that's sort of my own research or things that I've kind of come up with. Um, if you have questions about any of it, just contact me on Twitter or by email and uh, ask me what my references are. There will also be links in the show notes to um, all of the books and papers that I talk about. So look in the show notes as well. Um, so what is the HP, the Hypnorotomachia Polyphili? It's an incunabulum, or a book that was printed in Europe before 1501. Uh, it's considered one of the most beautiful incunabula because of its gorgeous and really elegant typeface, its um, interesting and fascinating layout, and its illustrations. It's illustrated with 172 woodcuts. Uh, it has a Roman typeface that was cut by the uh, 15th century Italian punch cutter uh, Francesco Griffo. And it's written in this weird language that's kind of a unique blend of Italian, Latin, and Greek. Uh, and the illustrations contain more language. They contain Arabic, uh, Hebrew, and what it claims are Egyptian hieroglyphs, but they don't really look like Egyptian hieroglyphs and don't really act like it. Uh, in fact, Preaky says, depending on each reader, reader's expectations and understanding, the story could be considered allegorical, alchemical, pornographic, antiquarian, or simply as theses on architecture, botany, gardening, or other subjects embedded in a romance. It's a fascinating book. Um, because of the weirdness of the language, because it's such a unique blend of so many different things, it's actually kind of... Uh, or supposedly it's impossible to read or very difficult to read unless you are um, pretty well-versed in a wide variety of those languages. Uh, and we'll get into that a little in a little bit, but um, the first full translation into English didn't happen until 1999, and it was Jocelyn Godwin, who, as we all know, probably knows like 100,000 different languages. He's a smart dude. Okay, in order to really understand the importance of the HP... It requires a little bit of historical context. So let's go back to the 15th century and take a look at what's happening back there. One of the biggest things that came out of the 15th century um, was uh, movable type and the printing press. Um, everybody knows about, you know, Johannes Gutenberg and his uh, invention of the printing press in the 1430s. Um, this was pretty much made uh, commercially viable because um, paper had been introduced to Europe in the 14th century, and after Johannes Gutenberg and his dudes uh, invented movable type, which you know had previously been invented in in China and Korea, but uh, but it, this was an independent sort of stream of invention. Um, but after they invented it and ha after they created their first printing press book printing exploded across Europe. It became incredibly popular and incredibly successful. So in like the first 70 years of book printing, there was something like 20 million different volumes printed. And then by the year 1600, there were like 200 million volumes. This was, It was huge, right? People really got into it. Books exploded. And they really changed the face of everything. They changed the accessibility of learning, they changed the accessibility of art. They changed the accessibility of uh, philosophy and religion and uh, caused all sorts of incredible changes. I'm not going to get really deeply into that right now. 
If you'd like to get a little bit of a sample of that, you should definitely check out my lecture on the art of memory, um, in which I talk a lot about sort of the influence of uh, the printing press uh, on the Renaissance and later centuries. All right. The Renaissance. The Renaissance followed close on the heels of the printing press. Um, we had, uh, so we can, well, we're going to talk a little bit about the Florentine Renaissance, and then we're going to talk about the Venetian Renaissance. So the Florentine Re- Renaissance, which happened in Florence, um, was really spearheaded by a couple of uh, pretty important characters. Uh, one of them was Marsilio Ficino. He was sort of the dude who brought Neoplatonism back. He reintroduced Plato, Plotinus, Porphyry, and Iamblichus into Europe. He uh, reintroduced the concept of uh, Platonic love and Eros as a spiritual force. He talked about immortality of the soul and transmigration uh, and the soul sort of existing in a broader sort of world soul. Um, A lot of these concepts were kind of like hanging out in Christianity, but um, having these classical authors and this classical sort of uh, weight behind them and a a different approach really kind of revitalized a lot of European thought. Um, So, and on the heels of the Florentine Renaissance came the Venetian Renaissance. And we're mostly going to talk about a couple of uh, important characters here. First was Aldus Minutius, who was a printer in Venice. Um, He's sort of well known for kind of creating... Uh, I guess probably the first affordable book. It was a size that we now know as Octavo. Um, It was apparently small enough that it would fit in your jacket pocket, and it was affordable enough that it cost maybe like a week's wages. So it was spendy, but it was sort of like, um, you know, getting an iPad or something nowadays. You know, everybody's doing it because it's super cool, uh, and it helps you learn so people were buying books now it wouldn't be a whole bible that would fit in your pocket but it would be you know some really interesting books and in fact the florentine renaissance um also introduced a lot of classical writers back into uh into you know renaissance europe including aristotle plutarch and more plato um in fact uh, in Venice, Aldus Minutius was involved in the founding of a philosophical school called the New Academy, named after Plato's original academy, uh, that was sort of focused on studying Greek texts. But most importantly, in the year 1499, Aldus Minutius uh, printed this book called the Hypnorodomachia Polyphili. It was the last couple years of Incunabula, uh, sort of the height of the Italian Renaissance, and this book was strange and beautiful. Uh, it, it sort of worked on, it sort of transformed an older literary tradition into something new. Uh, even though it was inaccessible, uh, it sort of started off as a little bit of a commercial failure. It ended up being reproduced and reprinted and turned into this sort of like underground mythological book of beauty and mystery. Uh, especially since, you know, not very many people could read it because of the weird combination of languages. This combination of languages made it really difficult to translate. Um, One thing in particular that's really interesting about this book is it didn't really make a whole lot of impact in the English-speaking world. So we'll see that later on when we start to get into uh, how the Hypnorodomachia 
influenced later culture. It didn't really touch a lot of uh, English stuff until quite a bit later. Um, in 1546, there was a French translation that was sort of abridged and didn't quite get finished all the way, maybe just 75% of the book. In 1592, there was a really abortive English translation that came out that was only about 40% finished. Uh, 1883, a long, long time after the first printing, was the first full translation into French by Claude Popelin. I cannot pronounce French. I'm very sorry about that word. Um, And then finally, in 1999, was the first full translation into English by Jocelyn Godwin. This was the 500th anniversary of the original printing, so it kind of took a little bit. It took a while. So let's get into this book. What makes it so mysterious and wonderful? Um, First of all, when the Hypnorotomachia was first published... It was published without an author. Like, there was no, nobody really claimed authorship of it. Uh, probably for really good reason. It, it's a, the book has a lot of uh, really strong pagan themes and stuff that probably would have gotten somebody, uh, you know, whipped heartily by the church um, if, they, if it had been associated with them. Um, but a lot of scholars have sort of kind of agreed or seem to be assuming that the book was written by this Italian Dominican uh, priest and monk named Francesco Colonna. Um, Colonna was born in 1433 and died in 1527. He lived in Venice and he preached at St. Mark's Cathedral and he was sort of an outspoken priest and got in trouble a couple of times and had sort of an interesting life. The reason we think Colonna was the author is that hidden in the in the Hypnorotomachia Polyphili is an acrostic. If you take the first letter of every chapter, they spell out a sentence in Latin. Polium frater Franciscus Columna Paramauit, which translate as, translates as Brother Francesco Colonna greatly loved Polia. Now, there are a number of uh, Francesco Colonnas who lived uh, in Italy at the time, but um, this particular Francesco Colonna, the the Dominican priest, uh, was Venetian and seems like the most likely candidate, especially when we sort of, when when the uh, dates of the HP or surrounding the HP are sort of um, compared with his life. So, I mean... I guess I don't know if I should be convinced or not, but I'm cool with Francesco Colonna being considered the author of this incredible book. So the title's weird, right? Hypnorotomachia Polyphili. What does it mean? Um, it, in English, it's usually translated as the strife of love in a dream. Um, and primarily because the word hypnorotomachia it seems to be made of three Greek words. First, hypnos, which means sleep. Second, eros, or love. And third, mache, or or war, or sometimes strife. Uh, and then polyphili at the end is sort of saying it's polyphilio's strife of love in a dream. This book, the general theme is that it's the dreamland adventures of this guy named Polyphilo. He wanders through this sort of wondrous landscape in search of his one true love, Polia. Um, It was probably influenced by earlier works, including Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, Boccaccio's Amorosa Visione, and probably Ovid's Metamorphoses. 
uh, Polyphilo, the main character, his name as well seems to have kind of like multiple possible hidden meanings in it. First and most uh, obvious, it seems it could mean lover of Polia, who is his uh, his primary romantic um, partner, actually his romantic partner in the book. Uh, it could also possibly mean the lover of many things. And maybe it could also mean lover of antiquity. This book in its theme is very pagan and very polytheistic. Things that would normally be portrayed as sinful or uh, wrong in, in Christian works are not viewed as sin. In particular, sex is not really viewed as filthy or wrong, though there are some weird uh, implied or metaphorical sex scenes that are a little uncomfortable. Um, and finally, Polyphilo himself has patron deities, uh, and they are Cupid and Venus, who are, you know, not Christian. Uh, Jocelyn Godwin, in his introduction, calls it unabashed paganism. And in fact, uh, at the beginning of one of the later chapters in the book, it says, Reason teaches us that nothing is difficult for the high gods. They are able to achieve any effect at will, in any place, and upon any created thing. For which reason, they are rightly called omnipotent. One of the themes in this book is um, descriptions of architecture. They're kind of fantastical. A lot of times, the descriptions of architecture include really precise measurements, like you know, talking specifically about how big various things are and how various things fit together. Uh, and it seems amazing until you kind of start to put the numbers together and realize that they can be wrong sometimes. And maybe that's a reflection of the, um, you know, the dreamlike quality of the landscape, but maybe it's uh, some other clue for something else. Um, some people who have read this book thought that there was some sort of hidden message in those numbers. We'll talk about that later on. Um, my first thought when I was reading the book is that uh, it felt like sort of a guided visionary journey through a landscape that could sort of be pieced together like a puzzle into some sort of memory palace or memory structure. I don't know. What we do know is that the architecture in this book is fantastically detailed. It includes Parian marble, orichalcum, Numidian stone, porphyry, shining stones, epistyles, capitals, colonnades, cornices, zophyry, friezes, arched beams, baths, aqueducts, pyramids, obelisks, statues, spikes, plinths, and a host of other elements. And if you do not know what all of those words are, Neither do I, but uh, but it's uh, it's just amazing everywhere in the book. It's it has this incredible detail. Uh, the architecture is just so detailed, and uh, and when you and and there's so much statuary and these visions and uh, encounters in the book, and it's filled with uh, erotic imagery. In fact, almost everything seems to have sort of like this erotic quality to it that sometimes starts to verge on the weird and disturbing. Uh, one that I particularly uh, was moved by was this uh, elegant carving of a uh, sleeping nymph and her nipples were spurting streams of water one hot and one cold at her feet an amorous satyr is standing aroused and ready for some leaven and then also sometimes you get some not so subtle 
uh, metaphor, you know, even from the main characters. Uh, in a later chapter, Polyphilo writes or says, uh, Now we were left alone in this sacred and charming place, I and my delicate Polia. I was all inflamed with the delectable fires of Venus and the increase of my love. Yikes. Uh, so I'm not going to I'm not going to go through like the whole story or the whole plot of the book. I'm just going to talk about some other elements of it. Uh, you can find lots of stuff written about this book online and one of the papers that I will link to has um, like a whole plot summary. But one of the things that I love about this book is uh, there's a there's a whole section where there's a parade, a, a triumph, or I guess it's described as a sequence of triumphs. But it's a it's a parade that's put on, um, I believe, uh, for Polyphilo's and Polia's wedding, uh, and it's incredibly detailed, filled with all of these magnificent scenes from Greek and Roman uh, mythology, and the floats or, or triumphs are kind of like described in these incredible details. Uh, and here's a really good example: the fourth triumph was carried on wheels of ferrous Arcadian asbestos, which, once lit, resists extinction. The rest of the carriage was carved from glowing troglodytic carbuncle, which fears not the thickest darkness. Many things could be told about it, but one would have to consider in what place and by what craft such works were made. And this goes on like the each one of these triumphs is uh, illustrated by one of the woodcuts. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's really, really worth checking out. Even outside of the architecture and amazing, um, you know, parades, uh, the rest of the world, the rest of this dream world is really intricately described. And in fact, there are these really lush, beautiful natural scenes where, you know, sometimes uh, Polyphilo's in danger, but sometimes he's like languishing in meadows or by rivers. And I have this one, another section picked out that I really wanted to read just because it struck me so... Like, the, the imagery was so beautiful. The leafy green and humid banks of the river were adorned with flowering narcissi and with the pungent bulb or sea onion that grows by water. The hyacinth was not wanting, nor the lilies of the valley. The gladiolus that grows in corn and the Illyrican variety. The marigold flourished there, the equisetum or horsetail, and the dandelion. There was a host of violets, Tusculan, marine, calatian, and autumnal. There was cement, also called simiodon or tracheotis, and other noble water plants. There were also countless river birds, the kingfisher with his blue plumage, another quick little waterfowl. The long-necked swans were there, dear to augurs, with the dying song that they sing on the waters of meander. So the story, the love story goes on and it has uh, elements of a frame story and, uh, you know, there's part where Polia takes over as a narrator. Um, At the end of the story, after everything has happened and they sort of like fall apart and come back again, uh, Polia kisses Polyphilo and he awakens. And when he awakens, uh, this story, the book, you know, comes to an end, and it really, like, explicitly says that he awakens on May 1st, 1467. And it was a dream. 
everything was a dream. Uh, Polia was a dream. Um, the experience was a dream. Um, his, you know, all of his uh, trials and tribulations were a dream. Um, and uh, and that's how the story ends. So, what does it mean, and what's it about? It's hard to say. Like, I honestly can't tell you. Um, I think it's really worth reading because it's just such an amazing, strange trip. The amazing thing about this book is it had a mythology to it that uh, influenced so many people after it. You could tell that, you know, even if people weren't necessarily able to read it in its original form, um, the woodcuts alone or just sort of impressions from the book had a wide-ranging influence on later works and later literature. Uh, including sculpture. For instance, in the Sacrobosco de Mozart, Mo, Sacrobosco di Bomarzo, uh, otherwise known as the Villa of Marvels or the Sacred Wood or the Park of Monsters in Bomarzo, Italy, um, you see statuary and sculpture that was probably inspired by the Hypnorodomachia polyphili. Uh, this uh, particular park filled with all of these weird statues was designed by uh, Prince Vicino Orsini uh, and built by the architect Piero Ligorio in 1552. Um, Gian Lorenzo Bernini's 1667 sculpture, The Elephant and the Obelisk, is almost certainly a direct reference to one of the woodcuts in the Hypnorodomachia polyphili, and this can be found at the Piazza della Minerva in Rome. Um, outside of that, this book, uh, in, or the Hypnorodomachia, influenced other authors. For instance, uh, Rabelais' famous work Gargantua et Pantagruel uh, has... The uh, Abbey of Thaleme in it, which has parallels with structures in the Hypnorodomachia, and its name resembles that of Thalamia, who is Polyphilo's guide when he had to choose between three portals. Um, those of you who know about sort of like the history of the OTO and Thalema might find that pretty interesting too. Next, The Chemical Wedding of Christian von Rosenkreutz. Uh, this was published by Johann Valentin André, or it was written by Johann Valentin André um, in the early 1600s and published in 1666. And it's this, it's this uh, intricate uh, and bizarre allegory where Christian Rosenkreutz goes on um, this fantastical journey to a long-anticipated and very important wedding. It's not his wedding, it's somebody else's wedding, but the book is called The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz. Um, so Preaky uh, points out several really interesting similarities in this book and thinks that uh, Andre probably had access to the Hypnorodomachia or had read it. Uh, Rosenkreutz, like Polyphilo, uh, begins his journey by selecting between three paths. Um, to get to the palace, uh, where the wedding takes place, Rosenkreutz needs to pass through three guarded portals. Uh, Polyphilo goes through three guarded portals um, on his way to the throne room of Queen Eleutherilda. That is difficult to say quickly. That is the first time I've said that word out loud. I'm, I hope that came across all right. Um, both Rosenkreutz and Polyphilo have uh, epiphanies of a naked Venus, and... 
Both of them find strange inscriptions and hieroglyphs along their journey and need to interpret them to succeed. Uh, these are interesting, and you can see a lot of similarities uh, between the two stories when you read them. The Hypnorodomachia is really long and much more detailed than The Chemical Wedding, but um, you can definitely see that something in the theme must have influenced uh, Christian Rosenkreutz. Uh, the next place where I think influence can be found is in the Holy Royal Arch degree, which is a degree of Freemasonry that follows the Master Mason degree. Uh, this work probably originated between 1720 and 1740, although, as with all early Masonic history, it's kind of hard to tell. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of interest in the Hypnorotomachia in the English-speaking world, so my suspicion, since the early Freemasons really, really liked uh, Rosicrucian stuff, the the Holy Royal Arch was probably more influenced by the chemical wedding than the Hypnorotomachia, so it was kind of uh, indirect. But there are some really similar parallels. I'm just going to go over them so I don't give away any secrets in this degree. But first, there's a long, arduous journey that's beset with like perils and strange visions. Uh, there's a part where you pass through a number of guarded portals in, in order to gain entrance to a throne room. And the degree itself involves the deciphering of strange inscriptions and mysterious hieroglyphs to reveal a great secret. Uh, I think that a good argument could be made that the Holy Royal Arch degree is directly influenced by some of the Rosicrucian stuff, and thus probably by the Hypnorotomachia polyphili. Uh, if we skip forward a little bit, there's uh, ever since there's been there's been a lot of interest in the Hypnorotomachia in modern times, and we see this in a lot of stuff. Uh, Arturo Perez Gomez published a book in 1994 called Polyphilo, or The Dark Forest Revisited, which is sort of a modern modern literary retelling of the Hypnorotomachia. Um, Arturo Perez Rivera. Uh, wrote a novel in 1996 called Club Dumas. Uh, this novel was made into the movie The Ninth Gate by Roman Polanski in 1999. Uh, in this, the Hypnorotomachia is explicitly mentioned as sort of an invaluable rare book that belongs to um, one of the book-collecting families in the story. Uh, but I think also... Uh, the the reliance on all of those complex and mysterious woodcuts in the in the ninth gate uh, seemed to reference the hypnorotomachia as well. Uh, next, in two thousand four, a um, book called The Rule of Four was written by uh, Ian Caldwell and Dustin Thomason. Um, this the story, the central plot in The Rule of Four revolves around a an original first edition, a fourteen ninety nine edition of the hypnorotomachia. Feely that's kept at Princeton. And this is a real copy. They really have a first edition of the Hypnorotomachia there. I don't know how easy it is to see it, but if you manage to get a chance, send me a picture. Send me a selfie. Um, here, the Hypnorotomachia is portrayed as like a very obscure and clever puzzle. And this is where sort of like the numbers and the mismatched architecture stuff is sort of seen as like a secret message. Uh, I'm not going to give away the ending of the book. It's it's an entertaining read, and I know a lot of folks are probably still stuck at home, so you should totally get it. Uh, just be ready for it to be um, less exciting and esoteric than you hoped. Uh, and the final work that references the Hypnorotomachia is one of my favorites. It's by one of my favorite authors, Umberto Eco, uh, The Mysterious Flame of Queen Luana. 
which was published in 2005. This book is about a dude named Yambo. He's a rare book dealer, and he wrote his doctoral thesis on the Hypnorotomachia in the story. Um, and in this in this story, uh, the influence of the Hypnorotomachia is that it deals a lot with sort of like memory and loss and an image of love. It's an incredible novel. Uh, if you get it, make sure you get it full color because it's got a lot of amazing illustrations uh, and it's really really worth checking out um, alright so that's sort of that's a uh, brief history of the origins of the Hypnorotomachia uh, polyphily um, it's, uh, it's sort of historical roots and some of the influences it's had uh, hopefully this gives you a good jumping off point um, for our future episodes about the Hypnorotomachia if you have questions or you have more information or you want to just chat about this mysterious book, uh, please um, look me up. Please get a hold of me somewhere. I, I love this book and I know that my own scholarship on it is just scratching the surface. So I really look forward to hearing from you guys. Uh, remember to check out the rest of the podcast episodes. You can find the Arnamancy podcast wherever popular podcast you know itunes stitcher uh spotify all that kind of stuff you can find find me everywhere um i also have a website with a blog and other information so go there and check it out and thanks for listening thank you for listening to the arnamancy podcast you can find me online at arnamancy.com, where you can schedule a tarot reading or peruse the Arnamancy blog. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. If you like this podcast, support it for just $1 a month through Patreon at patreon.com slash arnamancy.